Tonight I'd like to talk about happiness, the different kinds of happiness that we can experience, and the causes of it, how to go about it. On some level or other, it's what we are all seeking in our lives. We're seeking some kind of happiness or completion or fulfillment. It's said that what most moved the Buddha to compassion, what most motivated him to begin teaching after his enlightenment, was his viewing of the world with his wisdom eye and seeing so many beings who were seeking happiness and pursuing happiness and because of ignorance, because of not understanding the causes of happiness were doing those very actions, those very things which brought back suffering. Move to compassion. What are the different kinds of happiness that we can experience in our lives? Most of us have fairly limited perspectives on actually what's possible for us as human beings. The Buddha talked of seven kinds of happiness. The first of them is the happiness with which we're most familiar, and that's the happiness of the sense pleasures. When we see beautiful things or hear beautiful sounds, beautiful smells, delicious tastes, very pleasant sensations in the body, pleasant ideas or feelings, that brings a kind of joy to us. Even though it's true that they're impermanent and it doesn't last, still all of us, I think, have the experience of the kind of happiness that comes, the kind of happiness that arises in us, when for whatever period of time we enjoy different of the sense pleasures. There's another realm of sense pleasure, of sensual happiness, that the Buddha talked of. It's mentioned in the Buddhist cosmology, in which all the different realms of existence are elaborated and explained. There's realms of existence, they're called the heaven realms, or the celestial realms. When I first went to practice with Manindraji in India, during the course of the years of study there, from time to time he would talk about these heaven realms, and my mind just loved it. <laughs> and I think he enjoyed talking about it as well. In these realms, beings have bodies of light. I don't have these gross physical bodies. Bodies of light, living in pleasure groves, <laughs> enjoying all the pleasures of the senses on all sides. 
For people who like music, there are realms of celestial musicians. For people who like to play with their minds, there's realms of celestial intellectuals. <laughs> For people who like Dharma practice, you have to go with a strong determination. <laughs> it, it said that Maitreya, the coming Buddha, is now living his next to last life, the life before he comes and is born as a human being. He's living, he's living out his next to last life as a bodhisattva in one of the heaven realms called Tusita and teaching the Dharma in that realm. In the heaven realms, it's said that we're born spontaneously, not through a nine-month um, pregnancy period, but born spontaneously at about age 15 or 16. And we just appear in the realms, in the prime, ready to enjoy. <laughs> sounds nice. <laughs> but often when, especially the Westerners who were practicing in India, would hear of these realms, and there are others too, and there are 31 planes of existence in the Buddhist, in Buddhist teachings. Many people would hear of these teachings in these realms and be somewhat skeptical because it's not very much part of our own cultural conditioning. And when Indraji would talk about it, as I would get very inspired, other people would have some doubt about it, he would always end by saying that it's not really important whether you believe it or not in terms of the practice, in terms of wisdom, in terms of enlightenment, the belief in these realms is not at all crucial or essential. <coughs> it's so, but you don't have to believe it. And that's how he would end those discussions. <laughs> in any case, whether we're talking about the sensual pleasures, the pleasures of the senses that we enjoy as human beings, or the more refined pleasures, the more refined sensual realms of the heaven worlds, the question is, how does that happiness, how does that joy come about? What are the causes behind it? Things are not happening by accident. The events, the situations, the circumstances of our lives are not happening accidentally. It's all happening as the result of causes, the result of conditions. So when we understand the conditions necessary for the creation of these kinds of happiness, then we can begin to take our destiny into our own hands. So what are the conditions, the karmic causes for these sensual kinds of happiness, the pleasures of the senses to come back to us? Each of the different kinds of happiness that I'm going to talk about are created or conditioned by a different level of purity. And the level of purity which creates the potential or creates sense pleasure to actualize is called purity of conduct. Purity of conduct has two aspects. The first aspect is the cultivation of generosity. 
throughout the Buddha's teachings, very many places there's a tremendous emphasis placed on the cultivation of generosity. It's a tremendously powerful force in our minds, in our lives, in our relationships. Generosity is the expression of non-greed in the mind. And it's precisely that greed, that attachment, that holding, which keeps us bound on this wheel of samsara, this wheel of life and death. And so in every act of giving, in every act of offering, we're weakening the power of greed, we're weakening the power of craving, of grasping. In one place the Buddha said that if we knew as he did the fruit of giving, the benefit of giving, we would not let a single meal pass without sharing it. So great is the karmic force, the karmic power of acts of generosity. And it takes many forms. It's generosity of our time, of our energy, of our love, of our material possessions. It has to do with the giving of the heart, the opening of the heart. That's one aspect of purity of conduct. And it can be cultivated. It can be practiced. The other aspect of purity of conduct has to do with virtue or morality. And we talk in the course of the retreat, retreat about the basic five precepts of not killing, not stealing, not committing sexual misconduct, not lying, not intoxicating or confusing the mind. And the basic principle, the basic guideline underlying these precepts is the principle of non-harming non-harming ourselves, non-harming other beings. And actually this principle of non-harming is in itself one of the greatest gifts that we give to ourselves, we give to others. When we're established in virtue, when we're established in that harmony of action in which we're not harming other beings, what we're giving to every person we come into contact with is the gift of fearlessness. We give the gift of trust because we're making a statement with our lives, with the way we are, that nobody need fear us, that we're not going to harm anybody. A powerful, generous gift the gift of trust. <coughs> Just imagine how the world would be transformed if everybody on the planet observed one precept not to kill. One precept. And the whole environment of our planet would be radically transformed. This purity of conduct, of generosity and of virtue is, is the essential foundation both for our happiness because it's the cause of happiness coming back to us and it's also the foundation for any further development 
of understanding and wisdom. There's another kind of happiness. It's a happiness that's superior to the sensual happiness that we enjoy. And that's the happiness which you may have glimpsed or tasted even for just a few moments in the course of the retreat. And that's the happiness of a concentrated mind. When the mind is collected and concentrated and one-pointed, there arises a sense of joy and well-being that's more complete, more fulfilling, more whole than the happiness of the particular sense pleasures. There's a sense of rapture that arises along with concentration that's supra-sensual. It's above the realm of the senses. There are two kinds of concentration that, that can be developed. One kind is the one-pointedness on a single object. We take any object, a light, a sound, a mantra, a visualization, an image, a breath, and we fix the mind, we make the mind steady on that object. And that leads to states of samadhi, of absorption, of tremendous tranquility, tremendous power. All the various stories you read of great psychic powers and yogis flying through the air and all the miracles are actually not miracles at all. But they're a potential of the mind when the mind has that degree of focus, that degree of concentration. The kind of concentration that we develop in Vipassana is not that single object focus, it's called momentary concentration. That is, a steady mind on changing objects. So that in each moment, there's a sound, a breath, sensation, thought, image, emotion. In each moment, the mind is steady on that moment's experience. There's not an effort to lock the mind into any one object, but to create the open space for the whole range of experience to appear and disappear. Some of the states that Alan was talking about the other night, of metta, of loving-kindness, and compassion, and happiness in the happiness of others, and equanimity, all derive tremendous power as the mind becomes more concentrated. And each of those are actually, mm, there are actual meditations to do on each of those mind qualities. There are meditations on loving-kindness, on compassion, on equanimity. When the mind is concentrated, when the power of the mind is fully focused in that mind state, it takes on a universal dimension. It's no longer limited in a small way. Equanimity, a particularly important mind state in the development of our practice, in the experience of happiness, and in the deepening of our path of insight. 
There's a story I'd like to tell you about equanimity, but I have to check with Jack first and see if he told it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nothing, nothing worse than repeating a story that you've already heard <laughs> in the last day or two. I know. <laughs> They'll give a sense of the power of mind that comes from a concentrated equanimity. Seems that several centuries ago in Korea there was a lot of turmoil and civil war. And there was one rebel general who was particularly ferocious. He was just going around the countryside, killing everybody and devastating the land. He came to this one city and all of the people of the city fled. In the city there was one temple and all the monks fled, except for the abbot, the Zen master. And when the general heard that the abbot was still staying in his temple, it infuriated him that there was somebody who wasn't afraid. So he went charging up to the temple and he was brandishing his sword. As the abbot came out, the general was shouting at him, Don't you know that I'm one who can run you through without batting an eye? And the abbot stood and looked back at the general and said, And you, sir, are looking at one who can be run through without batting an eye. And said the general, the general bowed and left. When we're able to be run through without batting an eye, then there's fearlessness, then there's freedom. We may not be quite at that point yet. <laughs> but it points to a direction. And you've probably seen, even in these ten days, which is really a short period of practice in one sense, the growth of the happiness of equanimity. Now when you're sitting in the first few days struggling with the feeling of pain and discomfort and the kind of unhappiness that comes from that, and just as the mind gets more concentrated, more equanimous, makes more space, is more allowing for us to experience just what's there, there's a joy that comes from there's a joy that comes from that spaciousness, from that balance. The development of concentration and the kinds of happiness that come from that. This kind of purity is called purity of mind. Just as purity of conduct has to do with the happiness of the sense pleasures, purity of mind has to do with the development of concentration, development of equanimity. This leads into another kind of happiness. And it's the happiness of insight, it's the happiness of wisdom. And it's superior even to the concentrated mind or the mind of love and compassion. It goes beyond even that. And there's a certain unfolding to the path of wisdom. I'd like to briefly sketch out 
be unfolding in order to give you even in brief some context of understanding how the path of practice unfolds when we first begin our practice we're examining a lot and investigating exploring the content of our minds, the content of our bodies, the patterns of our personality, the kinds of thought, the kinds of feelings. And sometimes it's quite startling you know, to, to have such a direct look at our own personalities from the inside. There's a Nasruddin story which very much talks about this psychological level of understanding, which is really where the practice begins. It seems he went into a bank one day, he wanted to cash a check, and he didn't have any identification. And the teller in the bank said, I'm sorry, I can't cash the check without identification. Sounds like the Bank of America. <laughs> and reached into his pocket, Nasruddin thought for a moment, he didn't have any papers, but he reached into his pocket, he took out a mirror, he looked into the mirror and he said, yep, that's me all right. <laughs> that's the beginning of practice. It's like we're holding up the mirror and, yep, that's me okay. And sometimes it's encouraging and sometimes it's a bit discouraging. But it's an important first step to begin to get a clear reflection of the psychological level, of the patterns of our thought, the patterns of our emotions, the patterns of our physical energy. But as we do that, and as we watch and become mindful, the danger that arises at this point is that we can get stuck on this level because it's so interesting. I mean, who's more interesting right, than ourselves? And to have such a direct access to our personality level, it can be very fascinating. And people, it's easy to spend a lot of time kind of lost in that kind of awareness. It's just the beginning of the journey. And a big step is taken once we get familiar and okay with this particular level. And, and one of the key aspects of understanding at this psychological or content level has to do with the development of self-acceptance. That's where the power of concentration and equanimity come in. To be able to see all the different aspects of ourselves, all the weird thoughts and the unpleasant emotions and the whole range of our being, and to develop that sense of acceptance, of loving-kindness for ourselves. That's what develops at this particular stage, and it's, it's essential, because unless we get okay with the totality of who we are, it's very difficult to proceed further. Next step happens when we begin to let go of the fascination with the content of our minds, we begin more to drop into the level of process, which means that we tune more in to 
the process of change. The fact of each of the elements of mind and body arising and passing becomes more important, more predominant than what it is that's arising and passing. There's a very important um, stage or level of insight, another level, another level of purity, which is called purity of view. And purity of view comes about when we experience in our practice the fact that what it is that's happening in each moment is simply this progression of consciousness and object, knowing an object, knowing a sight, knowing a sound, knowing a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, an emotion, that in each moment there's this pairwise progression, consciousness and object arising and passing. There's one story of a man in the Buddhist time who had been considered very wise by his followers, but he himself knew that he had not actually touched real freedom. So he went off in search of the Buddha, who he had heard was this great awakened being. After a long journey of a couple of thousand kilometers, came to the village where the Buddha was living. And at that time the Buddha was in the village going around for alms food. And the man wouldn't wait. He was very insistent to go and meet the Buddha at once. So he went into the village and he found the Buddha walking along the street carrying his ball. He said, Sir, please teach me. The Buddha said, Wait, I'll be glad to teach you. We'll go back to the monastery. The man was very persistent. He said, you may die, I may die, please teach me now. He asked the proverbial three times, and the Buddha acceded to his request. What to do? How to explain the essence of the Dharma standing in the middle of the street holding your bowl full of food? Couldn't be a long sermon. And so he, he taught this man just one verse which is the essence of the teachings. It just encapsulates the whole practice. This is what he told this man. In the scene, there must be just the scene. And in the herd, there must be just the herd. And in the sensed, that is smell and taste and touched, there must be just the sensed. And in the thought, there must be just the thought. In the scene, just the scene. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. There is just what there is in each moment. No I, no self. It doesn't refer back to anyone. Rather, there is just what there is. So simple and so profound. The man heard it, and in most of these nice Buddhist stories, he got enlightened. <laughs> His mind awakened. The story goes on to say, there's a little postscript to it, that just after his awakening, 
a wild cow came up and gored him and he died. <laughs> but he had made it. <laughs> and so maybe he had had that premonition. That understanding is really the essence of the purity of you. To see that experience is not referring back to anyone, but rather what we are is a succession of mind moments of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. But it's happening so fast that it's like, you know, if you wave a firebrand around and you see a circle of fire, there's actually no circle there, but it's so fast it appears as if there's a circle. This process is happening so fast that it appears as if there's some solid entity, some solid being. Purity of view has to do with the beginning of the understanding of the momentariness of the process. That there's no one behind it to whom it refers. This leads into another stage of practice which is one of the most joyous. It's called Vipassana happiness. And it's the stage at which this arising and passing of phenomena on a momentary level becomes crystal clear. Our perception at this time gets so refined, we begin to get in sync with the speed of the process.
and where we're fooled by the illusion of density and solidity, our perception through the very practice that we've been doing, of simply noticing moment after moment, as we practice that, our perception gets quicker, our perception gets more refined, until we're actually in sync. Instead of seeing double images or the solidity of things, we're right there in each moment with the arising and passing away. At this time of vipassana happiness, the mind is filled with light and rapture and joy. Consciousness takes on a crystalline purity. It's like polishing a piece of crystal glass and it shines. That's the, that's the quality of consciousness at this time. There's a tremendous, overwhelming gratitude and joy. It's a happiness that's far superior to the happiness of concentration, to the happiness of sense pleasures, because it's the first taste, the first sense of really coming home. That sense of deep understanding of what this is all about. The mindfulness is working effortlessly, people sit for long periods of time. Then something interesting happens. People generally get very excited and enthusiastic and come running to whoever the teacher may be. The next stage in the practice is to see these very states of rapture and concentration and mindfulness and joy and light and all the things that we've been practicing so hard for. then reflected back as corruptions of insight. It's rather a disappointment, you know, after all the work. Why are they called corruptions of insight? Not because there's any problem in those experiences themselves, in those mind factors, they're the factors of enlightenment, but because of the liability to get attached to them. It's such an overwhelming joy and happiness that the mind grasps and it clings. And to the extent that it grasps and clings, no further progress is made. That's why at that particular time in practice it's very helpful to have a teacher. Because even people who know about this stage, know about them being corruptions of insight, when you're experiencing it, it's called pseudo-nirvana. Almost everybody gets trapped there because of the overwhelming happiness of it. And so a teacher at that point is very helpful to just kind of extricate the mind from that attachment and proceed along this path. It's like a mandala of insight. It's a journey through the mind of different perspectives. So we go through purity, first the psychological level of understanding ourselves in that way, then purity of view, then this vipassana happiness, and then seeing the corruption of insight in that. Then it goes to another stage, or another angle of view. And it's called the stage of dissolution. Because at this time, the mind is perceiving the disappearing side of things, before it was perceiving the arising and passing equally. 
but it moves on in this new perspective to focus just on the disappearing aspect. So everything it views, every moment experience is just dissolving, dissolving, dissolving. Consciousness itself is experienced as dissolving. It's like having the rug pulled out from under one continually. So there's no security, no place to stand. And it's happening very quickly. And it's a difficult, difficult time. It leads into some other perspectives called the insight of the fearfulness, the misery and disgust of samsara. Times of tremendous suffering. What's important to realize, and one of the reasons for talking about this, is so that you have the understanding this journey of ours, this journey of, of exploration, is not to create some happy mind state. Because if that were the case, we would just stay at that level of vipassana happiness and feel wonderful, feel full, feel total. But it's not really total, it's not really full. There are all these other aspects, the shadow side of the mind, that has to be seen and explored and integrated to see this dis dissolving, dissolution aspect, the fearfulness of it, the misery of it. Because there's, there's no security in the body, in the mind, in consciousness. It's all dissolving, instantaneously dissolving. In these particular perspectives, in practice, or stages, it's called rolling up the mat stage. Because all people want to do is roll up their mat and leave. Right? It's, it's very difficult. A lot, of, a lot of real existential suffering. It's not the suffering of a pain in the knee, and it's not the suffering of a particular psychological problem. It's suffering on a deep level of existence very powerful, very powerful in deconditioning grasping. When we see the dissolution of phenomena, not know it intellectually, but actually experience it in ourselves, it's a powerful force for letting go. Because we see, we know, we experience that there is nothing to hold on to. That in every moment, There's that dissolution happening. So it's a very freeing aspect of the mind, even though, or because of, the suffering involved in it. So again, we go through the rolling up the mat stage. At that time also, a teacher can be very helpful, because it's easy to get discouraged then, just to kind of give the encouragement to continue. Out of that, out of that, fear and misery and disgust and just wanting to get beyond it, there arises what's called the urge for deliverance. Strong, powerful urge in the mind to experience freedom. To see that in this conditioned process, in this conditioned process of mind and body which is continually arising and passing, there's no stability, no security no lasting happiness. And so there's this urge for deliverance to experience what's beyond that. And that urge for deliverance becomes so strong, it becomes a powerful pushing force in one's practice, in one's life.
And it leads to the stage of equanimity. And again, that's a very happy stage in practice. The mind attains a level of poise and equilibrium that's much deeper and much finer and more subtle than the happiness of the rising and passing away with the joy and the rapture. This is an equanimity in which there's no movement of mind. Everything is happening. All the objects are arising and passing and the mind doesn't move. It's like a balance scale that has reached perfect rest. <coughs> At that time the body feels very comfortable, it's very light and soft, the mind is very soft, and again people can sit for long periods of time. And it's this place of equanimity in which all the factors of enlightenment are being matured, they're being ripened. The factors of mindfulness and concentration and investigation and calm and the rest. They're reaching their final maturity. And when they come to ripening, when they come to the perfect balance, out of the equanimity, out of that place of equanimity, that intuitive opening of the mind can happen, the opening to the unconditioned, the opening to the zero center. That's the highest kind of happiness. It's the happiness of freedom, of putting down the burden. An image which stuck in my mind from the time in India, something that in some way reminded me of the happiness of that moment. During the summers we would often be living up in the mountains steep mountain paths and we would often pass by mostly, it was mostly women and old men actually who were carrying these huge huge timbers of wood on their back up the mountain and in order to balance and carry it they would have to be bent over and so that their bottom, so that the upper part of their body was almost parallel to the earth I don't know how much they weighed, but they were, they were big and heavy. And it was just amazing to see these people carrying these loads. And there was one place just at the top of the mountain where there was a little chai shop. It was where the mountain kind of flattened out on top and it was a flat, a flat time. And very often just at the top where their chai shop was, these people would climb to the top and then put down the load. Can you imagine the sense of relief, the sense of happiness from putting down that burden? That's what that moment of going beyond the mind, it's the putting down of the burden. Not only is it the happiness of the putting down of the burden, it also has a very particular power and effect in the continuing process of consciousness and that is at that first glimpse of the unconditioned, that first moment of opening, of cutting through, the power of that moment is that certain unwholesome factors of mind are uprooted 
from the stream of consciousness so that they never arise again subsequently. And at that first moment, that first glimpse, three of the ten fetters or three of the ten unwholesome factors are eliminated. And the first three are doubt and belief in rites and rituals and the belief in self, wrong view. And it's said that from that moment on, a being is destined to work through the remaining defilements to come to a place of perfect freedom. This is the, this is the context of what we're doing. It's important to understand, I think, because from hour to hour, day to day, you may lose a sense of the importance, the vital importance and incredible depth that's possible to come to. One caution in hearing all of this, and that is when people hear of a path or hear of stages, there's a tendency to project it outside of themselves into the future and to make a goal out of it. That is, I'm here now and I'll go through all this and get there. That's not an accurate image because actually it's all present now. And what we're doing is not reaching out for any of this, but settling back and refining our perception of what is. Very important difference in attitude. It's not a reaching out, it's a settling back and opening up. In that sense, the word realization might even be more useful than enlightenment. Because it's not in front of us, it's already here. Do you have any questions? At what point in the process that you just described does that first um, glimpse usually happen where those three feathers are dropped? Is that before the rolling the mat up stage? No, that, that's after all of those stages I described and it comes out of the place of equanimity. It's also not to think that this is one classical model and it's a model that describes generally what happens as people do this practice. In other systems of practice there may be other kinds of description. For example, one of the other models which I'm a little familiar with in the Zen tradition are the ox herding pictures, which also describe sort of the unfolding path, right? but from a slightly different language. So it's not to get locked into any particular expression, it's more to create a sense of the possibility of the depth of practice and the the range of experiences that one can go through so that when you're going through difficult times it doesn't necessarily mean 
that your practice is not proceeding. Because in fact, it might be deepening very, very strongly. Your description is also um, of what it happens in a natural kind of unfolding way. Um, and presumably, if, if um, practice conditions are out of balance in some way or another, then you're going to have You do imply, though, that it is a kind of progressive and gradual realization by using this, this model. That one necessarily has to pass through this stage and move really to the next stage and so on. It often happens that way, but especially people with strong parami, that is, who have done a lot of practice in the path, in the past, it's possible, and it has happened in from the Buddhist time to the present, that conditions may be right even outside the context of intensive practice where the mind just settles into that place of equanimity. You know, and in a moment, that opening can happen. And that's why I say, the reason for putting it out this way is just to give you a sense of the range of experience that's possible in practice as it deepens but it's not to get locked into it as an ironclad description. Because even the moments of awakening, of opening, sometimes they may just happen you know, quite out of the context of this description. <coughs> This is perhaps an insane question, but I'm still grappling with it. Can some of these things be happening simultaneously? Um, is there some overlapping? Or sometimes you presented it like you finish one and then. No, there's a lot of. You can go up and down through it, and people do. <laughs> because, especially in the way that I expressed it, it takes a continuing momentum to keep that going. Right? And so when people back off a little bit, then so the momentum is lost, and so then there's a uh, kind of backsliding. And then the momentum builds up again and you penetrate deeper. Again, I, I like talking about all this stuff because it's very interesting to me, period. <laughs> um, the caution is that you don't get attached to the model. So, so I, I'm, I like putting it out and sharing it because it does describe, to, in some limited way, the richness of the practice and the depth of it. But don't get attached to the model. I just kind of let it sit and enjoy it. Um, can psychic energy be missing? Sure. I mean, how, how would you avoid, I mean, how do you know what to do with it? Or what the proper use of it would be? Okay, let me just ask you a little more specifically what you mean by psychic energy. Um, like the very concentrated power you talked about that you're using. Right.
it can easily be misused because power of mind has nothing whatsoever to do with wisdom. It can be associated with wisdom and then there's no danger of it being misused or it cannot be associated with wisdom and then there's tremendous danger of it being misused. I mean, we're all familiar with the power trips that people go on with our quite insignificant you know, worldly power. When the mind has developed strong, very strong powers of concentration, if the mind hasn't been purified, it's liable to be associated with greed, with hatred, with delusion, with ignorance, and there are many stories you know, in, the, in the Buddhist texts of people who developed powers without developing purity of mind and getting in a lot of trouble. Which is why there's much more emphasis placed to first establish oneself in deep levels of wisdom and then if one wants to play and explore the other realm of mind, there's no problem. Um. This process could go on through several lifetimes too, say, and if you uh, undoubtedly pick <laughs> <laughs> up the next time where you left off. <laughs> to quote a famous California Zen master, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> What's <coughs> traditionally a very great value is placed on people reaching that level of Vipassana happiness that I talked about, the level of arising and passing away of phenomena. That's a threshold. Right? That's a major turning point in understanding. From that point, there's a strong, strong momentum to go deeper through all the stages of enlightenment, whether it happened in this life or some other life. Before that, because the level of understanding changes so radically at that time, before that, it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on the factor of faith and confidence and energy, you know, whether it will the momentum will actually uh, be carried be carried over. That stage of arising and passing is not it's well within the capabilities of almost everybody. You know, it, it's really at the beginning of the path. It's not it's not the end of the path. It takes a concerted effort. I mean, it's not it's not so easy, but it's certainly possible and there's a lot of emphasis placed on people who are strongly committed to this path of understanding to really put in the effort you know, for that. Um, I'll, I'll just give you one a classical image which describes the various strength of mind The, the image is of uh, a herd of cattle fording a big river. And the big bulls, you know, just go splashing across without no problem. They're 
uh, likened to fully enlightened beings right, who, are, who have done what had to be done, finished the task, no problem. The uh, mother cows, also big and strong and developed, uh, are likened to anagamis, which is the third stage of enlightenment, in which there's no longer any sense, desire or aversion. Right? That, that greed and hatred have been uprooted and eliminated. The like two-year-olds or three-year-old cows are likened to the uh, second stage of enlightenment in which anger and desire have been weakened although not eliminated. The one-year-olds who, who kind of struggle you know, to get along, to get through it, they're likened to people who have experienced that first stage which I mentioned tonight, the first opening. So they get across, but it's, there's still a lot to do and it's not so easy. The newborn calves are likened to people who have strong faith and confidence in the practice. And it's said that just like the newborn calves, by following the, the lowing, I think that's the word, you know, the sound that the mother makes, just by following the sound will cross the stream. And so people with strong confidence and faith in the practice also will cross the stream uh, because of that factor. Could you differentiate between uh, effort with faith, confidence, and energy? Differentiate between that and uh, goal orientation? Okay. Goal orientation. Goal is okay. You know, we've, and it gets a little tricky because it can be misused. And that's why there's so much de emphasis on goal. And mostly rightfully so. Because generally, when we are strong, strongly goal-oriented, there's a quality of ambition, a quality of reaching out for it. And that very ambition or reaching out in the spiritual path is actually counterproductive. Right? But if you understand goal not as being out there, not as a becoming something, but if you understand the goal of settling back and opening up to what's true, it's a very different mind state. It's not the mind state of ambition. It's the mind state of opening. And the goal, if you want to use the word goal, the goal of opening is beautiful. There's not a problem with that. To the degree that you're ambitious about it, you close. Right. Which is why the ambitious quality or the craving quality doesn't work in this in, in a spiritual practice. Faith, energy, confidence, all the factors of enlightenment can work with the goal of opening. Do you see the difference between the settling back and the reaching out? I mean, it's such a crucial difference in, in mind states. 
And it makes the practice, when the mind really settles back, then there's an effortless quality to the unfolding. But our minds struggle. They struggle with reaching out, trying to change things, instead of simply just being here. In going back to our other environments and in the work you know, oriented lifestyle that we all have to live and I in particular have chosen an area where it's, it's nice work and, uh, and yet still life gets very busy um, I'm wondering is it really possible Yes? It's really possible. <laughs> I'd, um, Jack and Jacqueline, tomorrow morning, I'm going to talk about really how to practice in a more worldly environment in detail. So I don't want to go into a lot of it now, but just to... Um, on the last, the last time when Indraji came, I think about two years ago, he came with a woman uh, teacher also, whose name was Krishna. And she was a beautiful inspiration of the possibility, the fact that it's actually possible to do it in the midst of a lot of activity. She was married in the Indian fashion, I don't know, I think 14. You know, 13 or 14 years old, didn't want to be. And she wanted to continue her schooling and very bright, very intelligent woman. And there she was, I mean, just caught, trapped in a kind of household life. Had two children, you know, busy cooking all day. Just, I don't know if you're familiar with traditional cultures. She didn't have much time to go off on retreat. Right? And she was so determined, though, to practice that she made her life her practice. She didn't just think of mindfulness as a good idea. She actually practiced mindfulness.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.